welcome to another installment of the TCU Neely School of Business Real Estate Webinar. Uh, my name is Carl Pankratz. I'm an adjunct professor at TCU, and I'm also president and managing director of Blackacre Commercial, the sponsor of today's event. Uh, Blackacre Commercial, we help uh, owners of manufactured housing communities and apartments finance, uh, refinance, or help with acquisitions. We help cities in their economic development department, and we help businesses with their corporate communications. We have another amazing speaker, and Scott, I can't wait to tell you about the amazing story of buying one single mobile home and, and building an empire and, and a lot of fun stuff in between. But before we get started, I know we have Christina on from TCU. Christina, if you don't mind, tell us what's going on on the TCU campus. What are you working on? Hi, Carl. So again, thanks for inviting me to join um, every week. Scott, we're so excited to have you this week. And um, I did just hear you mention that your dad went through the MBA program at TCU. Um, not too long ago. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, not too long ago. Yeah, we're excited to hear that. Um, I am the assistant director of recruiting and admissions for our graduate programs at TCU. So I am busy, busy, busy right now, finishing out our cohort. Our accelerated class actually starts orientation this week. Um, and then we are finishing out um, our full-length professional and healthcare MBA programs as we speak. But these weekly seminars are so exciting because one of the specializations and kind of industries you can focus in while in our MBA is real estate. And so uh, as we're talking to folks that are considering pursuing an MBA at TCU, they ask, you know, are the faculty all kind of academia? You know, what are their backgrounds and do they have real world experience in what they're teaching? No better example than Carl um, and the guest speakers that you invite to join us on a weekly basis. I'm so proud to be able to say that we have not only industry experts teaching our classes, but um, that you're bringing in, you know, friends and, and business relationships that you've built along the way to uh, engage those that are interested in uh, considering TC for an MBA program. So every week it's incredibly exciting to have a new speaker come and join us. And um, thanks for letting me pop on every week, Carl. Great. Thank you, Christina. It's always great to have you on. And uh, it's pretty amazing to see the class. I mean, the class is a, a phenomenal group coming on campus and it's going to be a great fall semester. We are looking forward to it and we are planning at TC to be back on campus in the classroom this fall. So we are looking great. forward to it and we're moving in that direction. Um, so fingers crossed we'll all be back in uh, on the Horn Frog campus soon enough. Well, go Frogs! Go Frogs! <laughs> Thank you, Christina. So now we move to the, the our speaker today and uh, I mean I tell you I I don't, I don't, if you're not familiar with manufactured housing communities and just how, how, uh, how much potential is there in the asset class, you, you don't have a better speaker than the one before you and Scott. Um, you know, I, I really, from a lending standpoint, I'll never forget 2013-ish when Freddie Mac emerged and uh, started doing non-recourse, high leverage loans in the kind of three-star space, meaning um, communities that, that maybe didn't have the, the high-end uh, amenities or, or, or high-end um, homes in a lot of cases, um, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of your blue-collar working-class communities. And really, kind of starting from 2013 into today, I mean, cap rates have, have compressed, and, and a lot more people know the secret that manufactured <laughs> housing was. So, you know, with that, I move into somebody who's background is something that immediately command respect and Scott um, you know Scott uh, is, is somebody that when we were kind of putting this together I, you know I didn't tell you this but you're definitely the, one of the first people I targeted because 
of your amazing story, kind of building from not much to a lot. So, you know, Scott, if you don't mind, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and just maybe kind of what you're working on today? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, 53 years old and um, I'm married. I've been married for 25 years. I've got three kids, 13, 15, and 17. Um, my degree, my bachelor's degree was in economics. And uh, I've, I've pretty much been an entrepreneur my whole life. 25 plus years I've been an entrepreneur. So um, yeah, and today what I'm working on is I, I recently sold the last of my communities uh, wow. the beginning of this year. And uh, now I'm investing in small to medium sized businesses between a million to $10 million in gross annual sales. And so we're buying companies, we're investing in them, we're taking minority interests, we'll do a, a lot of creative things, so. Is that both in real estate and outside of real estate? Uh, you know, I'm kind of opportunistic, so you know, you never know. I'm not doing anything in real estate at the moment, but you know, never say never, right? <laughs> I love it, I love it. Well, you had a career in real estate that I can't wait to talk about, but before we talk about the end game, I love to ask the question of, you graduate, you have a degree in your hand, you know, what was that first job out of college? Yeah, so, so when I was in college, I had a summer job working for Halliburton. Are you familiar with Halliburton? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, of course, in Texas, you know who Halliburton <laughs> is, right? <laughs> right, right. And so I had a summer job working for Halliburton. And I got out of school. I had a, my major was in economics. Had, had, the economy was kind of in a downturn. And so I had struggled a little with finding a job. And so I found another service company like Halliburton. It was called the Western Company. And they were hiring. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go do that for a few months till I can find, you know, something in my degree, right? And so I called him up and said, uh, got a guy on the phone and, and said, I, you know, I have some experience in the industry. I was an equipment operator and I did that for three months. He's like, well, why only three months? And I'm like, well, I was in college. And so it was a college job and I had to go back to college. And he said, so you have a college degree? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, we've got this field engineer training program. I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait. I didn't study engineering, right? My degree was in business. And so he's like, well, why don't you come in and talk to us anyway? And so I went in, I interviewed with them. They hired me in their field engineer training program. And there were 10 or 15 of us that year. And I was the only one without an engineering degree or a petroleum engineering degree. So, you know. <laughs> Just kind of figured it out. <laughs> and, you know, the great thing about that industry is, it teaches you how to work 100-hour work weeks. And, you know, that's a good skill to have when you're an entrepreneur sometimes. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine. So you mentioned your dad. He went through the uh, MBA program at TCU. What, what, what kind of business was he in? He was in the oil business. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I ended up with the summer job is he was in the oil business. And so he knew guys at Halliburton. And I was looking for a summer job. He's like, hey, why don't you go and work for Halliburton for the summer? I'm like, oh, that'd be cool. And so that's what I did for the summer. So you pivot from oil and gas, uh, apparently a, a, a newfound engineer, and yeah, uh, apparently. <laughs> you, you know, the, I think I told you, I was, I, I don't know if it was the Denver Post, but there was a phenomenal article that was written about you in a major paper about how you, you, you grew your, your kind of real estate empire from fixing up individual homes into buying communities eventually. So, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about the oil and gas background, but, you know, what kind of inspired you to, to buy that first you know, mobile home to fix up and sell? Yeah, great question. So Carl, I, uh, I had another business. My first business I started was in the computer technology field and it was really a consulting business. And so 
the thing that's a bummer about the consulting business is once you finish a project, you're always out there beating the bushes for the next work, right? And so there's not a lot of, at least the kind of business I was in, there wasn't a lot of recurring revenue. And so I started thinking about going into another business. And I went to a real estate uh, presentation. It was one of these real estate investor groups. And uh, this guy named Robert gave this presentation on these mobile homes he was going out and buying. So what he'd do is he'd, he'd go to a bank, he'd buy these bank repossessed mobile homes, he'd refurb them, and then he'd turn around and he'd sell them and he'd carry the paper. So he was like the bank for this. And I'm like, well, that's so interesting, right? Like, that just never even crossed my mind. And so anyway, I, after the presentation, I went up and met him, I got his business card. And like I said, I was looking for a new business opportunity. I had, I had that computer business still, but I was looking for something different, right? A little bit better business in my mind. And so um, I was doing some research and I was doing some research on the Hispanic market because that demographic in the Denver metro area had just exploded. And I just knew there was some kind of opportunity around that, that market. And um, I ran across the statistic that said only about 60 some percent of Hispanics own their own home versus like 75% of the U.S. population as a whole. And I thought, wow, that seems like a really underserved market. And then I thought about this guy that gave the presentation, right? And I thought, I wonder if his kind of housing would work in that market. And my wife is Hispanic. She was born in Mexico. She speaks fluent Spanish. And so I got her to write up some ads to run in newspapers about mobile homes for sale. I didn't get it. I didn't own one yet, right? But I just wanted to test the idea. <laughs> so I ran these ads about mobile homes for sale, right? X amount for down payment, you know, this much per month. You know, I kind of ballparked where I thought that would probably fall. Ran these ads and her phone just rang off the hook. And so I was like, wow, I think there might be an opportunity here. So I had Robert's business card and I called Robert and I said, hey, Robert, I met you at this presentation a few months ago. I've got buyers for homes. Do you have any homes? He's like, I absolutely do. And I'll pay you a commission if you broker the deal. And that's how we did our first deals. <laughs> I mean, what, from a, just a, a business class learning standpoint, I mean, what, what's more fascinating than you create the demand and then figure out later how to fulfill the orders. <laughs> Yeah, that worked out pretty well. And so then we were actually able to match that up. And so immediately after we had broke, I mean, I think we brokered one or two deals and I told my wife, okay, this is the business I'm going into. And so what I would do is I would go to lenders who had foreclosed, or not foreclosed, but repossessed because it's chattel. It's like a car, right? So they had repossessed these homes and we'd go to Green Tree and other lenders like that who had made a bunch of bad loan. So just like we went through in the last recession around 2009 with all the foreclosures, the manufactured housing industry had done that in the late 1990s, right? And so there were hundreds of thousands of repossessions. You could buy these homes for pennies on the dollar. And so we'd go buy these homes. Sometimes they were in perfect and almost perfect condition. Sometimes we'd buy them in the morning and we'd have them sold in the afternoon. I mean, we were selling homes as fast as we could. And and other people had sold to that Hispanic market, but nobody had targeted that market, right? And so we spoke Spanish, or at least my wife did, and I learned quite a bit along the way. And we targeted that market, and it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. I mean, we were just selling homes as quick as we could. Were you doing the rehabs yourself, or did you have a team? 
I am the least handy guy in the world. <laughs> and so on the very first one, I said, hey, I should do the rehab just so I know how to do it. And you know, a rehab that would take my rehab guys later days probably took me two months, right? So I did that very first one and then I moved on and let someone else that was qualified actually do the rehabs. <laughs> yeah. So for, you know, for people that might not be familiar with the manufactured housing communities, especially homes, I mean, one issue that, you know, that, that kind of hurts the industry right now is that chat, that the chattel financing, the home financing, you know, it's obviously there's great debt for communities, but for the individual homeowners, you know, if, if you buy a, your typical single family home, you can go to a, a lender, they're going to probably originate the paper and then they can sell it off to a Fannie or a Freddie or, you know, some other group that'll buy it similar to kind of CNDS execution. Well, obviously here, there's, there's not a, a Fannie or Freddie that's buying the paper that's originated. So, what, you know, in a lot of ways, it's just groups that, you know, it's either the, the community owner that can hold the cash or people that maybe won't originate more than five at a time to comply with the SAFE Act or, uh, you know, just, you know, there are a few groups that, that obviously do the business, but again, there's not really the big buyer of all the notes on the back. So, you know, obviously, we, you know, we talked about the, you know, the, the Fannie and Freddie have entered the industry and that really, you know, decompressed cap rates. But wow, if, if there was some kind of more of a, a mechanism from the government to buy the paper that's originated, the industry would, would almost kick in another year. Right. Yep. Without so, a doubt. All right. So we, uh, you know, what, you know, great story about buying homes. So now you've, you've bought some homes, you've turned them around, you kind of figure out you have a homeowning business. The next step is a community. So what was the first community you bought? What was that experience? Yeah. Um, so, 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 so the way I made that transition, Carl, was I owned these homes and they were in other people's communities. Right. And so what I realized was the risk in that business model was, if I got a home back, now I was paying lot rent, right? And so when I first started thinking about communities, it was all within the context of how to mitigate the risk in my ho basically home lending business. And so I knew nothing about income producing real estate. I didn't know how that worked, right? And so I talked to some guys that owned some communities and they educated me about income producing real estate. And I was like, wait, hold on. You mean every time I fill a vacant lot, the community's worth more money? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, so my risk would be lower and my return would be higher. And they're like, that's exactly how it works. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to transition from these homes to the communities. And so I had a loan portfolio that I built up at that point. I went to Jim Clayton's bank. He had sold Clayton homes, which, you know, Jim Clayton's like the godfather of the manufactured housing industry. And so Jim had sold Clayton homes to Warren Buffett. He took some of that money and went and bought all these banks. And I took my loan portfolio and I sold it to his bank and he bought that loan portfolio. And then I started buying communities. Wow. So if you don't mind, just for the average viewer, the non you know, can you talk about just how, how do manufactured housing communities work? What's the, you know, what's the, you know, talk about, you know, that people are paying for the pad. Sometimes they're paying pad and home. Would you mind just going through the business model a little bit? Sure. Sure. It's, it's basically uh, the traditional model is they're just leasing the space, right? So they buy a home, they bring it in, they set it up on the space and they're leasing the space. And it depends on the part of the country, but you know, those spaces can run from a hundred dollars a month to, you know, a thousand dollars a month or more, depending on the location. And so over time, and especially in the last 10 or 15 years, 
the ability for residents to buy homes and finance those homes on their own has gotten more and more difficult. You know, they'd made all those bad loans in the late 1990s. And so lenders are really skittish about lending on manufactured homes now. And so really the community owners and in a lot of cases have stepped in and kind of been that financing arm to be able to bring homes in and make them affordable for, you know, new residents and fill vacancy. And, um, and do it in an affordable sort of way because our, our residents tend to be payment focused, right? More so than anything else. And so it's all about getting the payment at the right price point that they can afford. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned at the top of the broadcast that, you know, the, the high number of Hispanics that you mentioned that didn't have any home ownership, right? Well, mm -hmm. I guess one, one neat thing, you know, we're all looking, how can we solve the affordable housing crisis or at least make a dent in it? Yeah. And what's really neat about manufactured housing communities is that, you know, if you own your home, then, you know, you might not get full value when you sell it, but at least you're going to get something, right? Yeah. Versus, you know, your kind of typical apartment where you're in and out, you pay rent and go on to the next one. So you're, you're getting some equity, you know, if you need to resell the home. So it is kind of a, a neat model for those trying to get some sort of home ownership. Sure. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Well, the last 10 years is just, you've seen an explosion in the space, obviously. You've yeah. wrote it and seen it a lot. And, and uh, you know, anywhere from, you know, kind of private equity groups that have fled the market to REITs being very active to more people learning how to syndicate and get involved. And, you know, can you talk about kind of from your vantage point, you know, what changes have you seen in the last 10 years in the space? Yeah, yeah. You know, 10 years ago, it wasn't very sexy to be in this space, Carl. Now it's suddenly way sexier than it was 10 years ago, right? <laughs> suddenly it's kind of popular. <laughs> Yeah, and so the number the number of new entrants in this space has just been unbelievable. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it's like you, Carl, you go to industry events or, you know, to Vegas for a big industry conference, you know, in, in the springtime, and there are so many new faces. It's just unbelievable how many people have come into this space. And so, you know, that's been good for the industry. Um, that's been good for innovation and kind of raising the bar with communities. And so I think... I think that's been good for residents. It's been good for, for owners and, you know, it's driven prices up a lot too, which, you know, being a seller of communities, I appreciated that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. Well, speaking of those new faces, uh, for somebody watching or listening later on the podcast that wants to maybe buy that first community, what advice do you have for them? You know, I was always a value add operator, right? So I always bought communities where I thought I could add a lot of value. Um, I, I wasn't a buyer of sort of stabilized communities with high occupancy where everything was running perfect. I figured in those situations, all I could do was mess it up. And so I like things that were a little broken. I mean, they may not be broken in a, in a, in a you know, distressed sort of way, but occupancy probably wasn't where it should be. Operating expenses were probably too high. Uh, rents might be below market. So I'm really going in and sort of, in most cases, sort of making financial fixes to the community. And I, I always felt like that was a really great way to manage downside risk, right? Because if you can go in there and you can improve the income a lot and, you know, you run into a recession, which, you know, I own communities through that last recession in 2009. Um, that's a really great way. It was, it was always a great way in my mind to mitigate downside risk, right? If I've gone in and I've improved it a lot and then I lose 20% of the income, I'm still in a really great position. And so that was really kind of 
one, my risk mitigation approach, but also the way I added a lot of value to communities before I exited them. Yes, I mean, that's a good point. So, you know, I'm sure you have friends that bought self-storage or apartments or retail centers. So when you talk about that 2009 time period, how did yours weather, how did your communities weather versus maybe other product types? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, you know, that was such a rough period, right? And even multifamily housing, right? Apartments went through, it was the worst that, the worst time ever in like the 30 years they had been keeping records, right? I mean, the multifamily industry just got hit so hard. And so we went back to look at it to see how we had done through that period. And our portfolio of communities had increased uh, NOI by 29% through the recession. Now, and, 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 the, and the reason we were able to achieve that was because we were always really careful about where we bought right? And so I always looked at the market characteristics, right? What does population growth look like, right? I want strong population growth, right? I want high site-built housing prices, right? Because the other options are unaffordable compared to manufactured housing, right? So we'd look at a lot of these data points. And so the real key was we had made the right decisions before the recession and we were in the right markets. And we just grew straight through that and we just, we didn't miss a beat. It was, it was phenomenal. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, so kind of taking a step back to the the, the chattel financing issues, um, obviously that's something that would be another supercharged in the industry, but, you know, with your impact, you know that the 90s, you know, a lot of that paper, you know, ended up being foreclosed upon and being a red mark, you know, for the people that ended up holding it. Yep. Do you see any relief in that anytime soon? I mean, do you ever see, you know, FHFA or the governmental agency saying, hey, this is, you know, affordable's, too valuable, we have to play here? Or is it just, you know, the, the chattel, it, it, it depreciates so quickly, it's just something hard to value and get our hands around. It's maybe not a space that they'll have that backing in the future. What are your thoughts? Well, my first thought is I don't have lots of confidence in the government making anything better, <laughs> right? That might reveal a little bit of my bias. <laughs> <laughs> okay. but, but I, but I, but, but what I find really interesting is the whole time that I've been in this industry, you hear politicians with all their hand wringing about, oh, what are we going to do about the lack of affordable housing, right? Oh my gosh, we've got all these people that need affordable housing, right? They talk, they talk it up big time. But then at the same time, behind the scenes, they're passing regulations and legislation that makes it harder and harder to operate manufactured housing communities, right? So in, in public, they say we've got to do something about it. But behind the scenes and, you know, from a legislative standpoint, they make it harder and harder to do business. They increase the costs on the industry that ultimately just get passed on to the residents. So, I, I, Carl, I just don't, I don't have a lot of confidence that, that, that they are going to fix that or provide a solution to that. I, I wish that was the case, but I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, so I mean, that's a tough topic. But another top topic, another tough topic is trying to, to find stuff to purchase today. So you mentioned you're a, you're a value add player, you're looking for error or broken. You know, today it's, you know, whereas, you know, maybe cap rates were eight plus, now they're six minus. So trying to find deals in today's environment, I mean, do you have any, any tips or thoughts on if you were gonna be active in the space? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm a value add guy, right? So I, I, would, I would not, I wouldn't buy a community that wasn't a value add community, right? I mean, one of the, one of the reasons I've sold over the last few years is 
when you kind of looked at the market overall, you know, we'd had a bull market that had gone on for years and years and years, right? Approaching a decade, right? All these new entrants into the space, right? Which are driving up prices. You had cap rates that were as low as I'd ever seen them, right? It's hard to believe cap rates would go any lower. You know, as I looked at that, I just kind of felt like the probability that we weren't at the close, somewhere close to the top of the market was probably slim, right? You know, just probability wise, I felt like this has got to be somewhere near the top, right? You never know, but you know, I kind of felt that way. Look, I think there's always opportunities out there, but I do think that you've got to dig harder, right? And I, and I don't think you're going to find a lot of opportunities through the broker network. I mean, I bought plenty of communities through brokers, but gosh, when you've got that many buyers competing for properties and assets, I think it's hard to find the right kinds of deals. So I, I think it's got to be proprietary deal flow where you're reaching out to owners directly. And, and, and then the other suggestion I would have is just value add, right? Value add can cover a lot of mistakes, changes in the market, right? I mean, I, I, you know, there were times when I went in and I bought a community and I'm thinking, you know, when I was buying it at an eight cap in a market, I'm like, I think this is kind of at a premium price, but I knew I could overcome that with the value add. So even if it went to a 10 cap, I was still going to be fine. And I was still going to make money. I'd make more at eight, but if it went to 10, it would be fine. And so that's, you know, like I said earlier, I, I've always felt like value adds a great way to mitigate and manage that downside risk. Yeah. And, you know, kind of last question on, on the MHC space. You know, there, there's, you know, one, one of the big uh, reasons you're able to maybe get great non-recourse financing is the concentration of buyer-owned homes. So, you know, if you're if in, in a community, if most of the homes are actually owned by the people that live in them versus the, the people are, are maybe renting the house on top of renting the lot. So kind of the, 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 the higher concentration of people that own versus rentals kind of had a higher premium as far as getting better financing. So naturally those are going to command a higher price. But I mean, I've heard that obviously people are successful in both ways. Some people love the, you know, the home rental model, you know, and they've kind of built their business strategy out of that. So, you know, for you, were you always looking for a higher concentration of buyer owned homes or were you okay with rentals or, you know, how did that affect your buying decisions? You know, it, it, it didn't affect my buying decision. I was good with either, either situation. Now, look, it was always preferable on an exit to have buyer-owned homes, right? There were buyers that don't like a rental, you know, homes that are rentals in a community or a lot of rental homes. And so you've limited your buyers on exit. So that would be, if, if, I, if I was... Um, thinking about the downsides of rental homes, it would, it would only be in terms of the exit, right? I'd only be thinking about that in terms of how is this going to impact our exit in a few years. And so, um, but, but over time, that's become a lot more acceptable. Some of the really big operators that, you know, in the early 2000s were like, we will never have rental homes in our community, right? We're a homeowner only community. All of those guys came around and changed their rental programs over time. So... Yeah, I think it's a lot more acceptable today than it than it was, you know, fifteen years ago for sure, right? There were some, yeah, as you know, there were some of those big operators like we don't do rental homes, right? It was just a source of pride that we have no rental homes, and then you know, within a few years, they were all in rental, all had rental programs. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, speaking of you know adjusting programs, uh, you know, you mentioned you're a serial entrepreneur. 
and you're kind of looking at mid mid-sized companies or opportunities. Is there anything fun you're working on now? Any companies you bought recently that you want to talk about or? Yeah, no, I, we, we've, we've been working, we, we kind of started this up about 60 days ago, right? I've kind of been waiting for the opportunity to come along, right? And you know, the market was booming, right? All assets were overpriced, right? I mean, there wasn't really, I mean, Warren Buffett can't find anything to buy, right? And, and so you just, it was really hard to find assets priced, right? And so I've been kind of waiting for a change in the market to be able to pursue some opportunities. And so we've kind of started this program about 60 days ago, reaching out, really we're reaching out directly to business owners. And man, I, I got to tell you, I can hardly keep up with the number of calls and emails and contacts that are coming in. There's a tremendous number of opportunities out there right now and a lot of companies that need help to, you know, in some cases, save the company and save the people. And, you know, and so um, that's been a good opportunity. And this, this might be interesting too is, Remember I talked about when I learned uh, about first buying homes and financing them and stuff from this guy, Robert, who had given the presentation. I'm doing a couple deals with him right now that we're working on together. In fact, I was on the phone with him earlier today with an owner of a business. And so, you know, some of these things just kind of come full circle, right? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, uh, you know, obviously a big part of success too is now you have the opportunity to maybe give back a little bit. Are there any kind of nonprofits or special interests that are close to your heart? Yeah, sure. Uh, my, my wife and my kids and I have been active with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. I was on the board of that for about five years. I'm not currently, but I was on the board of that. And so that's something that's, you know, kind of close to our heart and we've always enjoyed doing. And, you know, it's fun to see the, uh, the reactions and, you know, the impact that that organization makes. So, mm. Yeah, that's a great, great organization. Yeah, it is. And Scott, just what a, what a, just thank you for just so many fun thoughts and, and a, you know, an education and going from a, we'll figure out, I'll, I'll be an engineer and figure it out to, I'll buy a home and figure it out to, I'll buy communities and figure it out. So it's been a fun story. Is there anything I missed? Do you have any final thoughts? You know, I, I guess, I guess the only thing I might add is if, you know, you've got, you've got folks that are thinking about, you know, something entrepreneurial or entrepreneurship, right? You just gotta, you just gotta pull the trigger and move forward, right? There's never really a right time, right? Sometimes I see people and they're waiting for, well, as soon as this is right, I'll be ready, right? And I kind of think that's like when uh, my wife and I got married. Every year, I said I'll be ready for kids in about five years, right? And so we were married for like I don't know eight or nine years, and finally she's like, you realize every year we've been married, you say you're gonna be ready in about five years, and by that point, I was. 36, 37 years old. And she's like, I'm ready right now. And I'm like, I'm not ready, right? I'm like, I don't think I'm old enough, right? I don't think I'm mature enough. And it, starting a business is kind of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great input. We actually, we got a question in. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. So we got a question is, what, what's your take on RV parks? I like RV parks less. And the reason I like them less is they're much more mobile, right? And so a manufactured home is anchored down on blocks, tied down. It's relatively expensive to set a mobile home. And so they don't tend to move. And so you have really predictable revenue. With an RV, they move a lot. Now I've owned, I've owned mobile home communities, manufactured housing communities that have had an RV component, but, uh, but I've never done one that's just straight RV. And, but, but I hate the mobile part of it. <laughs> Yeah, now it's, I guess it's kind of like running a hotel. I mean, you really don't know who's going to be in your 
property day to day, you know, versus kind of having at least some sort of a year, if not longer, you know, contingency. Yeah, well, and 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 you're you're exactly right, right? In in the manufactured home community, you're running background checks on people, right? You're making sure that you don't have somebody, you know, that's a really bad person or a sex offender or something like that. And when you have this RV component that really moves through, it's it's really hard to kind of manage that, right? There's not there's not the expectation with that population that there's going to be a background check for them to come in. And so we tended to not do overnight RV type of things. We usually had long term. So you had to be there, you know, 30 days plus. It depends on the community. But we didn't, we didn't do overnight for that reason. Yeah. Another question. What are your thoughts on amenities? Did you, when you were buying parks, were you always looking for swimming pools or did you stay away from swimming pools? And obviously the playground equipment. What were your thoughts on amenities? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in family communities, I don't think residents want to pay for amenities, right? They're most interested in keeping the rent down. Now, that's a different situation if you've got a senior community. And we owned, we owned a senior community down in South Texas, Brownsville. And we owned a senior community in Mesa, Arizona, the Phoenix, Phoenix area. And in those situations, amenities are really important to that resident. But we had, we had some communities. We had one in uh, Georgetown, Texas, just north of Austin. And we went to our residence and this, and we had done really, really well on this property. And the great thing about it when you do really, really well on a property is you can give a lot back, right? You can invest a lot more in the community. And so it's, it's good for us as investors. It's also good for the folks in the community. And so we went to our residents in the community and said, would you like to have a pool, right? We don't have a pool. Would you like to have a pool? And every one of them was like, absolutely. That would be fantastic. We'd like to have a pool. And then our question was, what would you be willing to pay extra in rent for that pool? And they said, nothing, we're not paying for the pool. <laughs> so we're like, I guess we're not doing a pool. <laughs> That's funny. Did you, uh, did, did, you know, question as far as number of you, did you like to, you know, do 150 pads or were you okay doing, you know, 50 pads? Did you buy everything in between? You know, kind of what was your appetite on, on unit size? Yeah, I think, I think, Carl, the smallest property we had was about 60 units, but I tended to do 75 plus, and our largest community was 600. Um, the 75 plus for me was sort of the ideal size for your subsequent buyer, right? So I, I was never a long-term hold guy. And so 75 plus kind of fit fit the criteria for lots of types of buyers. And so it really expanded that. And it, look, it takes just as much work to run a 25 space community as it does a hundred, right? And so, you know, there's some of that economies of scale as well. So, but pretty much 75 plus was my focus. When you ran a kind of senior uh, communities, did they have more expectations for amenities or, you know, were they also indifferent? Uh, they had higher expectations for amenities. Yeah, and 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 they're more difficult resident, right? My my staff would always tell me, let's never buy a senior community again, right? <laughs> the great thing about seniors is they pay their rent on time and they're great payers. The bad thing about seniors is they have a lot of free time to, you know, think about what they're unhappy about, right? And so they would be our nicest communities, right, that we invested the most in, that had amazing amenities, and they would complain more than any other community, right? We'd have other communities with no amenities, and they were told, and the residents were totally fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Scott, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Just thank you for being so generous with your time and, and joining us today. And man, I, I just, I genuinely enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you, Scott. And vice versa, Carl. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. For everybody watching, uh, next week we're going to have a lender, uh, somebody I've done a lot of bridge loans with, uh, Scott Miller with Bridge Investments. So tune in next week for that. Thank you for all for joining. Thank you. Thanks a lot.